This uh, quarter, uh, if this is uh, the first time you're with us, this, uh, this quarter we're looking at uh, things related to the end times, um, looking at some of the teachings that are out there in the religious world and uh, weighing them in accordance with what Scripture teaches. Two weeks ago, we had uh, begun looking at kind of two combined topics. One, the rapture, uh, the, this belief that uh, at some point, all the world's living cre- uh, Christians will suddenly disappear from the world uh, toward the end of time. And connected with that uh, is a, a period of great persecution uh, and that's referred to as the tribulation. Now, as we looked at the rapture, uh, we noted that Scripture teaches that there will be one universal resurrection of the living and the dead the good and evil, all at the same time, sometimes referred to as the last day, sometimes referred to as the last hour, uh, that there will not be multiple resurrections, uh, that there won't be a moment when all Christians are resurrected and then another moment when the Old Testament dead who were good are resurrected and then finally the wicked being resurrected. No, all of those people, uh, including us, whether we live or whether we die, Uh, that will all take place at the same time. And furthermore, uh, the scriptures that are usually uh, advanced to support the idea that all the world's Christians will suddenly disappear uh, don't really teach that. Uh, Instead, they they are meant to help answer different questions. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 focused on what happened to those Christians that have died. The Thessalonians being concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died. Well, the focus is on Christians. He is not concerned to say what happens to all dead. So the idea that those Christians would meet him in the air is not a suggestion to say anything about what was going to happen with the dead, the the wicked dead. So uh, that passage doesn't support the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, often used as well just basically says that we're going to be changed. All right? This body is not going to inherit uh, eternal life or eternal destruction. And so Paul's focused on a different question than what a lot of people would like to use that passage to talk about. Connected with the idea of the rapture is this notion of the tribulation, sometimes referred to as the great tribulation. And we mentioned how even among people who have this notion of a rapture and a tribulation, there's there's diversity there as well. Does the rapture happen before the tribulation? Does it happen after the tribulation? Or does it happen sometime in the middle of the tribulation? Well, we've already kind of suggested Scripture doesn't teach a rapture. So that in itself already kind of says, well, maybe we should be suspect about this notion of a, a great period of persecution. Additionally, we might ask, well, if the rapture takes place first, supposedly, right, if we accept for the minute that that's true, if that takes place first, who are the people being persecuted in this tribulation that comes after? Well, the the supposition is that after the rapture, if we go with a rapture and then tribulation view, that the rapture takes place, And this convinces a lot of people, both lukewarm Christians who were not raptured because they were lukewarm, 
as well as Jews, or at least a sizable group of Jews, it supposedly convinces them the Christians were right and they start following Jesus. And so these are the people supposedly that are going to be persecuted if the rapture happens first and then the tribulation. If it is the rapture in the middle or at the end, it would be living Christians who would be persecuted. And so the notion is that there will be this coming time where followers of Jesus will be persecuted close to the end of time. In support of this view, there are a couple of passages that are used. One of them found in Matthew chapter 24 and one found in Revelation chapter 7. Let's take a look at these two. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now your translation might read a little bit differently. It might have the word ordeal instead of tribulation. It might have the word affliction instead of tribulation. But this passage is used to suggest there will be this time of great persecution, greater than any other time of persecution that has befallen followers of God. Second passage from Revelation chapter 7. In this case, um, John uh, in Revelation sees uh, uh, this group of 144,000 individuals. And he is asked by the angel that is near him, you know who these people are? And John replies, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So unlike the word rapture, which doesn't appear in Scripture, we do have this phrase, great tribulation, or as I mentioned, great ordeal, great affliction. Right? A suggestion of a sizable amount of persecution. In most cases, those people that believe in a period of persecution usually date it for being about seven years. You say, well, where do they get seven years? Well, this comes from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel has a, a revelation from the angel Gabriel about a period of what's known as 70 weeks. And that last week suggests that terrible things are going to happen uh, and there's going to be uh, tribulation and there's going to be an abomination that, uh, of desolation that is set up. And so a lot of people connect that passage with the notion of the Great Tribulation, that what, what Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 9 uh, is this Great Tribulation, even though the phrase isn't used in Daniel chapter 9. So it remains for us to ask, will there be a great persecution of followers of Jesus, whether that Christians who are, you know, the after the rapture or Christians through this period, will there be a great persecution before the end? Before we look at some of these passages a little bit more fully, I, I think one of the things we have to ask, though, 
is if there was a period of great persecution that took place before the end, would that not be a sign that the end is coming? If Jesus has said there's going to be this great persecution before the end, then we would say, well, that's a sign that the end is close. But as we've seen in other classes we've looked, what is the main way Jesus talks about how the second coming or the end of the world is going to take place? It's going to be like a thief in the night. And as we've mentioned before, a thief, as he prepares to rob somebody, is not going to give that person signs. So the very notion of a great persecution serves as a sign that the end is coming, and Jesus said, they're not going to be any signs. But additionally, we go back to Matthew chapter 24. One of the passages about this is from Matthew 24. Now we talked several weeks ago about the notion of this signs of the end, and Matthew chapter 24 is the main passage that are, is used to talk about you know, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be false messiahs, there'll be all sorts of other things. And in looking at Matthew 24 and asking the question about whether or not there will be a persecution, we have to pay attention to the context. Specifically, Matthew 24, 21 and I have no idea why the screen just went out. It was not something I did. Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 occurs before Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34. I know, you could have figured that out on your own. Why is that important? It's important because Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 34 says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So whatever Jesus means in verse 21 about this great tribulation, it must be something that took place during the lifetime, or at least the lifespan, of the people living at that time. So the great tribulation is not something out there end of time, but it is instead something that to us is in the past. And I would remind you that Matthew 24, as we looked at, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem up till verse 35, right? Because in verse 36, Jesus says, but of that day, right? He's talking about something different in verse 36. So prior to verse 36, Lifetime of those living, after verse 36, we don't know when. And so what great horrible thing would the people then living have experienced within their lifetime that would have been so terrible that it would have been a great tribulation? The only thing it can really describe is the destruction of Jerusalem. And we, when we read of the horrors of what took place as people were in that siege. 
just like the destruction of Jerusalem that takes place in the prophets, right? You read through some of those things that, that Jeremiah says is going to happen when the Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians. Same kind of thing took place with the Romans. People eating their children to survive, right? People killing their children to kind of save them from starvation, some of those other things. Is that a great period of tribulation? Right? That is a great period of tribulation. That, and it would have made sense to those readers. So that in itself also suggests that the great tribulation isn't talking about some period toward the end of time. But what of that other passage? Revelation chapter 7. Well, we don't have time to get into all of Revelation. And we're going to come back to chapter 7 as well in here in, in a little bit. But if we already have the understanding of great persecution would be a sign, and Jesus said there's not going to be signs, and the great tribulation that Jesus talked about was the destruction of Jerusalem, we should already kind of be suspicious that what what John talks about in Revelation chapter 7 isn't related to some persecution at the end of time. I will say this, though, before we go too far, because I don't want to kind of just leave this hanging. As we talked about when we were in the study, studying the Bible class, if you were in that class, the text has to mean something to the original audience first. While the Bible, the texts of the Bible were written for us, they were not directly written to us. And so the original re recipients of Revelation had to be the ones that understood what Revelation was about. And so when we try to understand Revelation especially, we have to keep it in that context. What sense would it have made to them who were undergoing great persecution themselves for Jesus to have them get this letter to say, it's going to be okay because thousands of years from now, some other group completely unrelated to you is going to be persecuted too. Would that have made them feel comforted? It would not have made them feel comforted. So we have to understand Revelation chapter 7, just like every other chapter in Revelation, it has to make sense to them first. It has to be something that addressed their situation before we try to say, what does it say to us today? Because I do believe it says some things to us today. Do we experience persecution? Probably a lot of us have experienced some minor persecution, maybe some significant persecution, Around the world, there are people who call upon the name of Christ that uh, fear for their lives. Or maybe not even fear for their lives, but their lives could be, be taken from them. But Revelation isn't a prophecy that there's going to be this great worldwide persecution of Christians before the end. What questions or comments do you have? What do we need to maybe clarify or, or say a little bit more about.
Right. Uh, Cecil, if you didn't hear him, uh, brought up uh, the, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, who lived at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, was caught up with the Roman armies uh, there as well. Uh, and the way he describes what take, took place with the Jewish revolt that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, um, you know, there's a lot of similarity here with what Jesus says would happen and, uh, you know, this period of, of great horrific things. Other questions or comments? If not, then we will move on to the next topic. Also connected with a lot of these end time speculations about what's going to take place and uh, these theories about uh, how the end is going to come, in many of them, Israel plays a prominent role. I mean, the Jewish people play a prominent role. And so it's important to ask, is Israel going to be important in the end times, specifically related to the idea of, um, you know, is, is there going to be this mass conversion of Jewish people before the end? Kind of where Israel fits in with this. So in thinking about this view, there are a couple of things that, that people will point to to say, Israel still has a role to fulfill that will culminate in the end times. One thing that people will point to is the concluding chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Now, if you are a daily Bible reader, uh, and, or, or if you've ever tried to study the book of Ezekiel, uh, when you get into some of those late 30s, early 40s chapter-wise, it can, it can be tough. Because Ezekiel goes around with this man who has this measuring rod who is measuring a temple. Right? And so you get these, you know, the... The, the courtyard is this long, and then the alcoves of the different temple are this long and this tall. Right? And it can be tough because it's very, very detailed right? as far as the length. And he's measuring this, and he's measuring that, and there are the rooms in the temple. Right? So there's a lot of measurement that takes place. The temple that's described in the later chapters of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is writing during the Babylonian captivity, so there is no temple in Jerusalem. That temple described there in Ezekiel does not match up with descriptions of the temple rebuilt after the Jews went back to Jerusalem, Judea. And so the belief is that prophecy has not been fulfilled. That temple has not been built. And so for a lot of people who uh, you know, think about these kind of things, they believe that there is still a third temple that is going to be built, and it's going to be built according to the spec spec uh, specifications, I knew I could get that word out, the specifications found in the latter chapters of Ezekiel. And so the supposition is, right, this is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled. Another component of this idea is brings us back to Revelation chapter 7. 
let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Uh, we, we already talked about you know, those that have gone through the, the great affliction. I didn't put this up on the, the screen, so we'll, we'll just go ahead and, and read it. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. And then he goes through and and for each of the tribes uh, says 12,000 sealed from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then finally Benjamin. And so here are these 144,000 who are called servants of God, who are sealed on their foreheads, they are meant to be protected. And remember, most of the people that support this idea believe that Revelation is about the end times. So the belief is that at the end times, 144,000 Jews will essentially convert. They'll accept Jesus as the Messiah. We'll get to that in a little bit. Hold that thought. That's a very good question, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So the 144,000, you've probably heard of the 144,000. Very important for Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, have a lot of end-time speculation as a part of their theology, but also important for a variety of other uh, evangelical and uh, fundamentalists in thinking about the end times. Slightly different, the 144,000 are the only ones to go to heaven for Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, The 144,000 for the the, uh, denominational groups we're talking about are Jews that convert. Uh, Usually, again, the idea is the rapture takes place, These 144,000 Jews suddenly decide, oh, the Christians were right. Start following Jesus as the Messiah. Also very important in all of this is the development of the modern nation of Israel. Important in a couple of different ways. In the 1920s, 1930s, a lot of people that kind of support a lot of these views became very opposed to a lot of political activity. They weren't very involved in politics. They had a lot of speculation about the end times and a lot of people holding conferences about end times prophecies and developing a lot of very complicated charts detailing all these things going to take place. But 1948 when the modern nation of Israel developed, that to them was, this is it. Right? The start of the end times has taken place. And so there has been this movement in the last seven decades of people believing that we are getting closer and closer to the end times because the modern nation of Israel, 
Right? It had to all start at the end times. The clock is ticking. Now, even though a lot of these people don't say right, how long is on the clock, the clock's ticking. And so the modern nation of Israel becomes very important and because right, the temple prophecies, the idea of the Jews going to their homeland, the 144,000 Jews, this must be the last times. And so there are a lot of people that are very supportive of Israel, not because they're necessarily supportive of the Jews, but because of the role that Israel is supposedly going to play in the end times. And so there, there's been a lot of people very supportive, trying to help Israel um, because of these very things. But again, we have to ask, will there be a mass conversion of Jews, either at the end of time or after the rapture? Well, we've already kind of answered that second part. Right? The rapture does not appear to be a biblical topic, so we can drop that. But will there be a mass conversion of Jews toward the end? This too, we would say, okay, kind of sounds like a sign. So maybe we could say, right, probably not valid because it's not a sign. But there are other things, I think, that we can look at. But first, I think it's important to ask, why is there there's such support for Israel? Why is there such a desire to kind of make sure the end times happen the way they think Revelation lays them out? I even think the, there's a role that the Jews have to play at all. Part of this has to do with certain beliefs about the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And that the covenant God makes with Abraham, to many people, is an irrevocable covenant. It is an eternal covenant. And so the assumption is that that covenant is still valid. And so the Jews are still God's chosen people. That land is still the Jews', the Jews land. Are any of God's covenants irrevocable? As he presents it to Abraham, he doesn't present it necessarily as, right, this can be revoked. But when we look at all the covenants that God makes, there's always the conditional aspect of the people on the other end have to keep fulfilling their side of the bargain. That was true with David, right? God, you're not going to fail to have an heir sit on the throne. Well, there was a period there where there wasn't an heir. Jesus is David's ultimate heir, but there was a period where there was no king. And there hasn't been a physical king right, since right, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, right, the, the, the grandsons of Josiah. Why? Because that covenant for a physical king was revocable. When the, the people didn't live up to what they were supposed to, right? 
I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. That's the way God talks about it, believe in Hosea. So God's covenants are always conditional. When the people fail to live up to the covenant, the covenant can be done away with. And God has done that. The covenant of law was in place for a certain time. The people didn't live up to it. God revoked it. So the assumption that the Jews have to play an important role in the end, end times is already difficult based on some of the things God says about the people, about His covenants, and other things related to that. But there is this interesting passage in Romans chapter 9 through 11 that also people look to to say that, that the Jews still have an important role in God's plan. There's a couple of things that are, are difficult uh, about this. In, in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul talks a lot about the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles. He spends the, the first five chapters or so setting up that God justifies us makes us right with Him by faith, not by works, particularly works of the law. And then he talks about what the law was for. Right? We've died to the law, so we're not under the law anymore. Right? We're to live by the Spirit, not by the law. But what does that mean for the role of Israel? Is where Paul gets to in chapter 9. Has God abandoned Israel? Has His word to Israel failed? Paul's response is, absolutely not. But, there are a couple of things that are talked about out of Romans chapter 9, at 9 through 11, uh, that people say, well, this demonstrates uh, that that God still has a role for Israel. Um, Verse 26 of chapter 11 is one pointed to to suggest this. Where Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Now on the surface, that sounds like what we're talking about. Right? This idea that at some point, all of Israel is going to be saved. There are two things to note, though. And one of those things to note has to do with the three most important things in Bible study. Context, context, context. In those opening chapters of Romans, Paul makes a distinction between those who are Jews and those who are Gentiles. But then in in chapters 9 through 11, he starts talking about Israel, which on the surface may not sound like a big deal. Israel, Jews are the same thing. Not quite. Not everybody that was a part of Israel was a Jew. Jews related to the tribe of Judah. So not everybody was, there's a distinction as to who, what a Jew referred to. That's why one of the, 
songs I can't stand at VBS is the three wandering Jews. Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob were not Jews. But I get overruled every year about that. Right? Once there were three wandering Hebrews, right? They were Hebrews. They weren't Israelites. They weren't Jews. So why all of a sudden does Paul start talking about Israel instead of talking about Jews? Maybe he has something different in mind when he talks about Israel than when he talks about Jews. And I think that comes out in chapter 9. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. Wait a second, Paul. What are you trying to say? Not everybody that is biologically descended from Abraham is in the Israel Paul's talking about. Who's in the Israel Paul's talking about? Well, when we look at Romans... When we look at Galatians, the people that are truly Abraham's children are those who are justified by faith. And it has nothing to do with their biology. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. And God has always justified by faith, even under the law. You had to trust in God. Even if it was possible for you to absolutely perfectly keep the law. If you didn't trust in God, that wouldn't have been any better than breaking the law. And so, when all Israel will be saved, chapter 11, verse 26, who's he talking about? He's talking that, about that Israel who is made up of Abraham's children according to the promise, according to faith, whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile. So Romans 9-11 through 11 doesn't teach that the Jewish people are still God's chosen people. Does God still love the Jews? Absolutely. Does God still want to see the Jews saved and made right with Him? Absolutely. Just as He wants Gentiles. So there's not a special role Israel has yet to play. It has already played its role as a collective group of people. But what about Revelation 7 again? And those 144,000. And those 144,000 coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. Abby's already kind of pointed out something important about that list. The tribe of Dan is missing. And in fact, the list given in Revelation is unlike any other list anywhere in the Bible of the 12 tribes. There is no other list in the Bible that matches up with Revelation. It doesn't accord with the birth order. It doesn't accord with the way that the, the 
the land was allotted, and it doesn't line up with any other list. Because also missing from this list, Ephraim. And included in this list is Levi. So if we were just going by the sons of Jacob, Levi should be included, Dan should be included, Manasseh should not. If we were going by the tribes that had land, Dan should be there, and Joseph should not, and so Ephraim should be there. So this list, we already have to say, wait a second, something's up with this list. Because it's not like any list in the Old Testament. So maybe we should ask, okay, why are Dan and Ephraim missing? Now while I can't give you an absolute 100% this is the reason, two of the tribes most identified with idolatry in the Old Testament explicitly are Dan and Ephraim. And so in this list of the 12 tribes where people are being called out as God's people, those two don't show up. And so part of this is is already kind of situated to make a suggestion about who these people are. Chapter 14 tells us a little bit more about the 144,000. They are all men and they are all virgins. So even if they're not Jews, that eliminates a lot of us who are already in here. Both those of us that are married and both of those of us that are women. Which, looking through, leaves just a few people. Furthermore, let's think about that number. 144,000. Is 144,000 even? Exactly, 144,000. Now, numbers are very important in Revelation. And they are absolutely important. So whenever you see a number, you need to not take that as a literal number. You need to think about that symbolically. Now, this number, of course, is broken out for us. Where does this 144,000 come from? It comes from how many groupings? Twelve groupings. And twelve groupings of what amount? Of 12,000. So 12 times 12,000 or 12 times 12 times 1,000. Does the number 12 play any significant role in Scripture? You got the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. So the number 12 is very important as a symbolic number. And so we would already start to say, okay, maybe there's something symbolically going on here. Not literally going on here. The other thing to note in this passage is when John experiences this, in verse 4, he hears the number that is being sealed And it goes through all those tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. Verse 9, after this I looked. He hears the number being sealed. Then he looks, and he looks and sees a great multitude, chapter 7, verse 9, 
There was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Now, on the surface, that might not sound anything to us. We might think, okay, must be talking about two different groups. Not so. Here again, context, context, context. Chapter 5. John sees one seated on the throne, God. And in his hand is a scroll sealed with seven seals. One of the living creatures cries out, Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals? And no one is found worthy to open the seals. And John begins to weep because the message of God is sealed. Nobody can reveal it. And he is told, Do not weep, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and is worthy to open the seals. He hears this. He turns to look at the line of the tribe of Judah and sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Hears lion, sees lamb. Is it two different people? No, it's one person. Jesus. He hears 12, 12 groups of 12,000. He turns to look. Is it two groups of people? It's not two groups of people. And so the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel and the great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation are the same group. The 144,000 symbolically meant to say the entire people of God, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Same way, talking about the great number of multitude that no one could count. We'll pick up with just a couple of uh, last things uh, about this Lord willing next week, as well as then move on to um, the Antichrist. And maybe, if you're lucky, we'll talk about 666. So Lord willing, that's where we'll pick up next week. Thank you.